Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. Helen, today we're talking about ancient coins, and you were saying oh. that you own a couple of ancient <laughs> coins? Please tell me and the listeners about your coin collection. I do. I have a coin collection. It has all of two coins Ooh, in it. So, more than yeah, one is a collection. <laughs> it's quite portable, I have to say. Um, and I sometimes take it to my classes and, and uh, send them round. And, and they love it, though. They love holding these coins. And one of them is um, a coin from Pontius Pilate. It's it's a, a tiny, tiny little bronze coin. It's, it's a widow's mite. So it's the oh. smallest denomination. And it dates, this, this one dates from 29. 30 CE. So who knows? Maybe Jesus or one of the disciples held it in their hand. Maybe they bought something with it. I think they definitely did. So I, I think they probably did. Yeah, I expect so. My coin is the one. <laughs> <laughs> and I also have a, a little silver denarius of uh, Vespasian that was um, part of the Judea Captor range, which were, um, it's the merch that went with um, after the destruction of the temple. Oh. You know, the the Flavians were busy making all these coins. So I've got one of those. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's worth a heck of a lot more than the pilot one. But but the pilot one has sentimental value oh, does, because yeah. I I wrote my PhD on Pontius Pilate and my parents bought it for me as a graduation present afterwards. Oh. So, um, yeah, very sweet. Oh, that's very nice. <laughs> so that's well, my collection. Yeah, well, you got, your collection is two coins bigger than mine. So that's, that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I want to I want to direct our listeners again to our to our partner site Bible Odyssey where they can see pictures of a lot of these coins that Helen was talking about. I was just checking it out. They have a Judean coin from the 4th mm -hmm. century BCE, which is very old and very cool. Um, and they have one of those silver half shekels for paying the the temple tax. Oh yes, the temple yes, coins. Yes. So, a lot of the things that we're talking about in today's episode, you can go to Bible Odyssey, see pictures of them, and learn a little bit more about it. But yeah, today we are talking with the coin, the ancient coin guy, uh, Michael Theophilus. Michael is a associate professor of biblical studies and ancient languages at Australian Catholic University. And uh, I think that's in Australia, I believe, <laughs> unless it just has a bad name. And he is the author of a book called Numismatics and Greek lexicography. Did I say that right? Numismatics. You've been practicing that, haven't no, you? No, I haven't. You've been just, practicing that all day. I was day. just reading it, and I'm like, <laughs> is this going to work? Numismatics. I think you've got it. And Greek lexicography. Uh, that came out in 2020. Anyway, Michael, like I said, he's, he's the guy on Ancient Coins. So uh, let's get to our conversation with Michael Theophilus on Ancient Coins and the Bible. Hello, Michael Theophilus, and welcome to Biblical Time Machine. Hello, nice to be here. All right, now, Michael, before we get into all the, the fascinating history of, of coins and the Bible, I have to run something by you, and you can tell me how how famous I'm going to be. So when I, I went to Israel in uh, the fall with my family, and we got to participate in this, have you heard of this, like, Temple Mount sifting project? Have you I heard have. this, like... Yep. They're like rubble and they're going mm -hmm. through coins. So you see where this is going. Um, I I did. I was the only one in our group who found a tiny little coin. Mm. At least they told me it was a tiny little coin. It looked like a little green smashed M&M or something like that. 
Um, but they said it, they think it was from the Byzantine era. So like, am I going to be in the, in the Jerusalem museum at some point? Like, is this a very rare find or is it, do you find stuff like that all the time? Well, I guess it's possible. In, in Land. Um, d- depending what color flavor M&Ms you like. Um, but, but the Byzant- Byzantine coins of that, uh, of that quality are, uh, are fairly common. Um, uh, oh, and depending dang. on, depending on who you ask, uh, our, our one's discipline interest would probably determine what, what uh, value that they would attribute to that. Um, so post Constantinian, right, uh, so unrecognizable I... probably wouldn't rate as highly in the museum's collection, <laughs> uh, priorities. Yeah. I gave them my email and said, contact me if, <laughs> if you need more information. They have not gotten back to me they should just let me have the coin anyway but whatever um all right so please michael tell this is a a new word to me numismatics so Mm. the study of of ancient coins but what Mm. like how did you get into this what is this field all about give give us a little introduction yeah yeah well like like you say it's the study of ancient coins but it's um uh, it, it's really an attempt to understand as much as possible about the coin. Uh, so we're talking about uh, design, the inscription, uh, even the minting technique. Uh, but most important of all uh, would be historical context, uh, how it was used um, and and what value uh, it had in antiquity. Um, and and the, the process of that in, involves, of course, uh, you know, monetary systems, um, the economic conditions, obviously the political environment, uh, and all that operating within the, in the cultural dimension associated with the coin. So ancient coinage was was by weight, wasn't it? So you have gold coins, and they have to be a certain weight. Is is that right? And silver. So, I mean that that's quite a major difference to today too, isn't it? Our, ours are just representational, mm, aren't they? Yeah, that's that's right. In fact, the very first. Um, mention of numismatic type um, uh, vocabulary in the Bible is a shekel, yeah. but that occurs within uh, within the story of uh, of Abraham. Uh, but that there is precisely that, Alan, it's a weight. Um, so money were chunks of metal with uh, value associated with precisely their weight. That was then standardised, obviously, and a denarius in the first century was a standardised weight, uh, as was a tetradram uh, or whatever coin that you were, um, uh, you know, dealing with. Oh, right. So like a, a an ounce or a, or a gram or something today. Then. Yeah, or a, or a pound, you know, is it a pound, yeah. pound yeah, as, yeah, a, you know, so. as a weight and, and also, a, you know. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Well, tell us, tell us about, you know, all the different types of data and information that that you and other scholars can find when you're looking at a coin because we might just look at it and say oh there's the shape of caesar's head and some greek thing that i can't read or something but <laughs> you guys <laughs> yeah what is all the different information that could be that could be taken from something like an ancient coin mm. well this is where it gets really interesting in in, in my opinion because uh, ancient coins uh provide us with a wealth of information um, that serves fundamentally as a primary source or window into antiquity. And so you have, uh, you know, so you've got chronological um, uh, information. So coins will very helpfully have a date normally, mm-hmm. uh, not uh, 
BCE and CE, obviously, <laughs> but they would have a date in relation to the reign of the ruler who, who authorised their minting. Uh, and that obviously helps with, uh, you know, with, with dating uh, events and uh, stratigraphic layers archaeologically and, and so on. Mm. Uh, but it also has um, symbols and images. So the iconography of the coin is really important. Inscriptions, which help provide insight into culture and religion, politics, uh, you know, how people are communicating, uh, you know, sort of the ancient propaganda of the time. Um, so mm. it depicts, like you say, um, you know, gods and heroes and rulers, uh, significant events. Um, and then from those, um, you, you also have, because I mean, the great benefit, obviously, with the coin uh, is that you can pinpoint the time and the place of its minting, uh, and that goes a long way. Um, it's very uh, hard uh, in most other uh, bits of material culture to be so specific about the time and the place, literally sometimes down to the month or even the mm. day um, mm. of, of uh, pinpoint accuracies. And that's, that's, you know, really, really important and helpful when you're, when you're interrogating um, uh, ancient history. But, yeah, so economic information, geographical information, so you've got linguistic information, um, there's, you know, obviously political information, but then also, the, you know, the whole gamut of um, artistic expression and designs of the coins that reveal a lot about the not only the artistic abilities but the aesthetic values of a civilization which is in some ways very very different to our own you mentioned propaganda i always think this is really interesting and it's very much top down isn't it because this is mm. this is not the voice of the people this is the voice of I mean, who would you say? Is it the ruler? Is it a person, mm. you know, a person in the ruler's office? You know, who somebody mm. has kind of decided on these images. And um, mm. can you just talk us through that whole process and, and, and to what extent yeah. they are propaganda? Do you think, is, is that what they're trying to do? Yeah. They're trying to influence people's minds. Yeah, well, that's a, a really interesting um, uh, you know, kind of uh, approach. I mean, you, you often encounter this term propaganda and as i was using the term i thought oh mm. this it sort of requires a little bit of unpacking as well <laughs> um especially when it comes to ancient uh, i mean in, in in english parlance the word is normally used derogatively um yeah. with reference to information that's you know that's publicized that's biased that's intended to promote a particular political point of view um and you know i think of uh, george orwell's maxim all propaganda is lies even when one is telling the truth, <laughs> uh, something like that. Um, but um, so, so in that sense, that that kind of modern conception um, propaganda uh, is, you know, it sort of fits. Um, but there's also a more subtle, um, more sort of neutral definition, which uh, refers to the sort of the educational efforts or the information used by an organised group um, that's made available to an audience. And so, you know, marketing uh, is a form of communication for that similar type of purpose. Uh, it, it, it is trying to influence a course of action uh, or confirm a certain attitude uh, that's desirable to the group that's, that's, that's organising it. Um, so in that sense, the, the coins uh, are, you know, think of a, a, a coin of a city far away from Rome, uh, they're celebrating this, this civic identity 
uh, whether that's uh, religious or historical or, or their connection to Rome or whatever it might be. Um, and in the process of doing that, it is it is tr- it, it intentionally trying to shape or mould the community, community's attitude towards a a ruler or a theme, a cultural or or otherwise. One of the things that comes out of that often is, well, if they are that kind of information, then how can we, how can we possibly trust them? Why would you want to use that as a source of historical information when they're so clearly biased? And I don't think there's there's anyone that would um, say that they're not biased. But what it does do uh, is it gives us a really clear picture of how the the, the ruler or the mania, um, depending on exactly what period we're in, how they wanted to be perceived, how they wanted their rule to be perceived. Um, so when you come to literary sources, they're secondary sources at the best. They're idiosyncratic. Um, they're distorted, consciously distorted, um, when it comes to the deeds or intentions of the individual emperors or whoever they're talking about. So we're never going to really know what really transpired under Domitian simply by reading the sources that talk about Domitian. But what we can know, if you have a look at Domitian's coins, is is how he wanted to be represented and portrayed to the, those around him. And that is uh, where coins really come to the fore and really are operating as primary source material. They tell us about how that ruler or individual wanted to be portrayed, and it's so striking because it's visual, and also including the uh, you know inscriptions or titles or whatever it might be, and that's the real unique contribution of coinage. It combines those two elements as a true um, uh, primary source insight into the ancient world, uh, and and that's uh, very helpful, I think. Hmm. Well, yeah, maybe we could look at an example. I think this is an example of that. So. You know, in uh, anybody who reads the Bible, anyone who uh, celebrates Christmas um, <laughs> is familiar with the phrase uh, King of Kings. Um, is it true that that phrase is found on ancient coinage? And what does that what does that kind of tell us about how it might have been adopted by uh, the early Christians to, to refer to, to Jesus? Yeah, that's uh, that's a fascinating uh, e- example that that. Um it's, it's actually a title um, uh, on on coinage, the uh, Vasileves Vasileon. Um, that occurs very regularly, not on Roman coinage. Okay. Um, uh, it, it, it's uh, and, and you might think, well, that's um, not very helpful. We, we're talking about a Roman context for <laughs> for the Christmas story, but I think there's a really good reason uh, for that. The, the, the title was very regularly attested on the coins of Parthia. Um, uh, and in fact, uh, every single first century Parthian ruler, uh, had that title on the, on, on the coinage, their coinage, his coinage, cause it's a male um, ruler. In that wait, for, for people like me who don't know their, their ancient geographic regions. So what, what was, uh, <laughs> what was Parthia? So, pa- well, Parthia is the, the, you know, Rome's, um, enemy basically um the the only major kind of threat on the horizon for first century rome Hmm. was the uh the people group to the east the parthians uh and they uh you know the romans engaged in 
uh, all, all sorts of um, battles with the with the Parthians throughout um, its its history. Um, that they were established really as their most notorious military enemy. Um, you know, earlier, but you know, anywhere between the first century BCE and 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 the first century CE, um, the um, that the Parthians were in this sort of constant. Uh, Political military tension with with Rome, but if you think of the Roman Empire, it's sort of east of uh, of Rome. Yeah, but you were saying, uh, yeah, that it, that that phrase occurred on on Parthian coins. So how does it, yeah, how, how does it make its way into the New Testament, or how how would have been how would that phrase yeah. have been interpreted by the people? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we, we come to that uh, that that title that phrase "King of Kings," uh, which, like you say, is um, often related to um, uh, Christmas stories uh, and whatever else. But you know, the, the title itself comes from that from that Parthian world. Um, it, it it there was not a single Parthian ruler in the first century who who doesn't use that title. So when you find that title. On a couple of occasions, it actually only occurs uh, in that form uh, in the Book of Revelation. Hmm. Uh, there is also another different grammatical form of it um, in uh, the pastorals, but uh, as a title, King of Kings, it only occurs um, twice in the Book of Revelation. Uh, however, the, the Romans were familiar with that term. Um, Hellenistic Jews were familiar with with the, with the title. Uh, it's used uh, in the Greek world for Zeus and the children of Cleopatra and Antony and and other things like that, um, but it's never um, uh, in in that uh, Greek world uh, adopted to a, a for a human ruler. But uh, aside that, that's a little broader context. In the Book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as um, the King of Kings. And within the context of that occurrence in Revelation uh, chapter 17 and then again in Revelation chapter 19, Jesus is presented as triumphantly conquering Rome in the image of Rome's feared enemy. Mm. Um, So he shares both the title and the form of transport on a horse of their feared enemy. Mm. And ironically... Or perhaps quite suitably, uh, the ultimate conqueror of Rome, from the perspective of the uh, the Book of Revelation, is portrayed in the form of her historic and feared enemy. Mm. Um, and you know, I, th- I think that's a, a brilliant way of. I'm trying, trying to think of some modern parallels. Maybe you guys can. Um, but you know it, the, the idea that uh, you present an apocalyptic document uh, in that way, I think, uh, is 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 fantastic. It, it, it ticks all the right boxes uh, for communication, drawing on a world which they're familiar with, and then superimposing a uh, an image or typology onto that world for them to really grasp the pr- profundity of um, of that act of communication. I suppose it depends a bit, though, doesn't it, on people knowing what's on coins and things, and mm. um, and 
I mean, I, I, I always wonder this because, you know, I, I'm not sure that I, I'm happily using coins, but I'm not always very sure that I'm looking very carefully at what's on them. Yeah. Um, is there mm. a danger that we could sort of overanalyze coins or or do you mm. think or do you, I mean, I suppose in the ancient world, coins would have been mm. more scarce. So are people mm. more likely to have known what was on their coins, more likely to yeah, take no, that's notice? A- it's a good, a good, a good point, and it's helpful for us to think about the differences, um, as, as well as the similarities. I, I think the main uh, thing to consider on that point is just how much visual stimulus we have. Uh, you know, I walk out my front door. There's a there's a billboard advertising whatever. I you know look on on my phone. There's a thousand advertisements that come up or whatever it might be. Um, so the question of who noticed. In fact, if you asked the general population of you know, an Australian or whoever, uh, what's on a 20 cent coin. Now, um, you, you might get some quizzical looks um, because who, who knows or who even cares? In antiquity, though, there aren't that many forms of visual stimulus that you would, I mean, there's a building, there's maybe an inscription, but there's the stuff that you have and you see and you use every single day for transactions. We don't use coins as much. Uh, these days, especially in say modern Australian cultural life, um, it's it's more electronic. So, uh, but but there are beyond that kind of notional idea, there are um, uh, several forms of literary evidence that suggest that people did pay attention to coins, images, symbols, and the like. There's a one story that's um, uh, it's interesting. Uh, the Stoic philosopher Epictetus who's writing at the start of the second century, um, and he says the, uh, the, the, the imprints that, um, that he brought with him in his mind um, uh, were such that um, we look for also upon coins. And if we find them, we accept them. If we don't find them, we throw them away. And he has, uh, who, whose imprint on this Cistercius? Is it, is it Trajan's? Give it to me. If it's if it's Nero's, throw it out. It will not pass. It's rotten. Well, when you're talking about you know recognizing images on coins, I mean, I was I was remembering the the famous verses in in Matthew where we're talking about you know rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and and Jesus you know asks for a coin and says whose whose likeness and inscription is this when they're talking about the denarius, mm-hmm. right? And everybody is quick to say oh that's that's caesar's right so is that another sort of literary or textual textual reference that shows us that people were definitely paying attention to their coins that's a great example i should have done i should have started with that yeah i mean that's that's perfect it's like you you have this is jesus powerpoint presentation uh, he he's drawing on the visual awareness of uh of, of what people are familiar with to make a point when he's asked a controversial question about paying tax mm. um, which is a risky thing to start talking about if you're a public figure um, and he's T- today he's and yesterday precisely yeah. drawing yeah, on the words exactly. indeed yeah um, and, uh, and 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 that kind of awareness i think um, uh, helps us appreciate um, how people are, are perhaps more familiar with their coinage than we are with ours 
simply because of the the use, the regularity of use. And there are some coins, aren't there, with, um, is it comets or stars on that um, perhaps <laughs> have some kind of, you know, illustrate something to do with Matthew, do you think, or the the star? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's right. Um, there's a whole series of, um, of coins that have, that have, uh, that have that. Um, and what, what do they represent? I mean, is it just a, a decoration or is, does it, is it meaningful in some way? Um, yeah, the, the, it, absolutely meaningful. Um, there's, um, depending on how, uh, how much we want to uh, delve down this uh, fascinating kind of rabbit hole. Um, the the, uh, s- s- the the star uh, or comet or astral phenomena uh, on on coinage really goes far and wide uh, in when it comes to when it comes to coinage. Um, but you know, the, probably the most famous one was uh, after the death of Julius Caesar in um, March of 44 BCE, uh, there was a series of public games held in honour of Caesar in July of the same year. And we read in another source in uh, Pliny the Elder's Natural History that um, uh, Octavian attributes particular significance to uh, this comet that appears um, and this comet apparently appeared for seven days and was taken as evidence of uh, uh, Caesar's apotheosis, so rising and going up into the uh, into the pantheon of of gods and deified. Um, and then this was uh, taken to be a sign for Octavian later Augustus that he was now the son of the divine one. Which is quite helpful propaganda, uh, if mm. your uh, adopted father in that case, and you know, <laughs> this was attributed to them, then you were the beneficiary of that because you were the, um, the, the the son or inheritor of of that one. And that's uh, there's there's um, a fair, fair few ancient sources that, that talk about that. But this vivid association between Caesar as the deified one and Octavian as the son of the deified Caesar had the dual function of securing, uh, I guess, the, the allegiance of Caesar's military veterans and simultaneously enhances, en- enhancing Octavian's status as a son of the divine Caesar. Um, and uh, later on um, in 18 BC, e. Oct- Octavian, at that point then now Augustus, uh, explicitly draws on that typology and issues several a uh, series of silver denarii uh, with his portrait and title on the obverse or the head side of the coin, the front, and then the Julian Comet, as it's referred to, on the reverse. Hmm. Well, well, that's really cool. I mean, just yeah, just to try to think about, like you said, these coins giving us a clue into the the visual culture, the visual imagery that people would have been familiar with. So when when the New Testament account of Jesus's birth comes around and there's a, a new star in the sky mm. that th- this would have been very familiar to them. The idea that, you know, God's son is appearing with, uh, with this new star. That's, oh, that's cool. Um, I, I, I did mm. want to ask. Yeah. And, and interestingly, oh, yeah. please keep on. Yeah. Sorry. Just, a, just a brief little note on that. Um, the, 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 the Greek word that we have in the New Testament is astir, which is, 
which, which which really refers to anything that's bright and shiny up in the sky. It's hmm. the stars are different from comets, which are different from eclipses, which are different from you know whatever. Uh, it's phenomenological language. It's what it appears to be from the viewer's perspective, uh, and so it could uh, an astir could equally be a comet or hmm. a star or whatever it might be. And as you can see on on the coins of uh, of Augustus. Um, it's sort of a, a, an interesting and shiny astral phenomenon. Um, mm. So if that's a difference that listeners are thinking, well, one's a comet, one's a star, um, that's mm. uh, it, it, it's more um, uh, describing the world by virtue of how you're experiencing it, mm-hmm. i.e. something shiny up there when I look up. And that's the point of connection, like you say, which is uh, which is of interest because I think what Matthew is trying to say uh, in telling that story is that, well, you've heard about, you know, this story about Caesar and Augustus and you have the coin, um, you're familiar potentially with the coin because it was something that was minted widely. Uh, well, let me tell you about the true son of God. Mm-hmm. And he goes on and, and uh, you know, obviously uh, gives, gives further uh, information on, on that. So, yeah, really interesting connection <laughs> with the biblical text on, um, on that point. Nice. Um, yeah, well, no, I wanted, we were talking about Denarii's uh, a second ago about, you know, the, the famous line about, uh, render unto Caesars and, and Denarii's come up again and again. There's, mm. you know, the ungrateful slave sort of demands a certain amount of Denarii from, from the person who owed him money, stuff like that. But if we're looking, if we want to look at that time period, the first century, you know, first century CE in Judea, like, it must have been more than just Roman coins in circulation, right? Like, what what are the types of different coins that people would have have come across in their you know daily lives? Yeah, this is uh, what's really interesting is that coins last a really long time, um, and uh, they last a long time uh, in 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 circulation. Um, but in terms of cultures, you've got uh, Roman coins, but you've also got different types of Roman coins. So you've got uh, with the imperial coins of the empire so we're talking about you know julius caesar and on but you've also got republican uh coins from the previous era that are still being used and circulated we're, we're talking about the precious metals that are used just because a ruler changes or a political system changes doesn't mean that silver is now not worth anything um it's still silver and can be melted down and minted um again um Sometimes that's a political act of domination or control over the previous um, uh, political entity. Mm. Uh, but you've got coins uh, that are from the Greek world that are circulating. You've got uh, from, say, what is now uh, Syria uh, and that part of the world. Then you've got, obviously, even, you know, we're talking before about the Parthian coins uh, that are circulating around. So it's a, it's a mixture of all sorts of coins. Uh, and so the image you get is... Uh, I'd say another story within the New Testament, you know, when, when people come to the temple to um, make, um, to participate in the sacrificial uh, process, they, they, they come with foreign money. And that money, just like we need to exchange money uh, when we go to another location, um, uh, you, you need to uh, have the right currency to perform the economic transactions that you're wanting to perform. Uh, and that involved money changes, and that's why you have money changes at the temple. It's it's a bank, 
Um, mm. they're, they're, they're doing financial transactions and that's, uh, that's required uh, mainly because you do precisely have various forms of, of money that, um, uh, that is carried and used uh, in somewhere like Judea. But that's a really interesting coin, though, isn't it? Because those money changers are changing all this currency into Tyrian shekels, aren't they? Yeah. I, I was always told, you know, when, you, when I was, I don't know, very young, you know, you imagine that they're, they're changing all this terrible, bad Roman coinage with its yeah. images of the emperor into something sort of mm. pure and unsullied mm. and sort of perfectly fine mm. for the the temple but that, that's not the case at all is it at least in terms of graven no. images it's full of them <laughs> yeah that's right i mean melkart on the on the obverse this is the epitome of what shouldn't be on uh, mm. a, a Jewish uh, coin that's used in the temple. This is sort of mind-boggling in one sense that you have a pagan deity that a coin is converted into to pay your temple tax. Um, mm. But what it comes down to, thinking of purity again, is that it was the, the only coin uh, where the – we were talking about debasement before about the amount of silver or gold in, in a coin. This particular Tyrian shekel was one coin that had a very um, standard – um, um, amount of silver. So it was only coin, I think it was about 90, 92.5% silver that was consistently in the, in the Tyrian shekel. And so this is a good example of how finances uh, trump perhaps the um, <laughs> religious scruples um, uh, where uh, payment could be made. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, there, there's some rabbinic <laughs> discussion about how large the coin or the entity is before it becomes a problem i don't have the reference to you know oh right oh, that's um, interesting yeah. so a little a but little were... graven image is all right <laughs> well yeah and so so it was a um it, uh, the ancients were were thinking and wrestling with that same question um but uh, yeah they it was a it was an economic necessity in their minds that uh, they couldn't just accept um parthian or some roman denarii i mean there's some parts of towards the end of the first century, even even sort of three-quarters of the way through, where some denarii are debased down to 2% silver. So you can't pay oh, your wow. temple tax with denarii because it might be that only 2% of that coin is silver and you need to pay in silver. That's the, the, the commandment of, of the Torah. There's a very specific um, hmm. regulation around that. So in that sense, uh, it, faithfulness to the Torah is the intent but the actual mechanism involved this particular what um, I think a lot of um, first century Jews would think of as problematic. Well, something you said earlier about sort of the political, you know, messaging, the political purpose of of coins. Uh, Helen was reminding me that, you know, during these Jewish revolts and these Jewish wars against Rome, that the that they started minting their own coins, right? Was that sort of an act, you know, a political act, obviously? Absolutely. Uh, it's a political act that had a visual and I think for the money a um, very satisfying outcome where they could literally take the Syrian tetradrams with all its incumbent idolatrous imagery, uh, including an image of Melkart um, uh, and associated uh, Zeus and Nike on on the reverse, uh, and and physically striking over the top of that hmm. uh, 
the way the way uh, coins are minted, um, if uh, listeners aren't uh, familiar with it, is that there's a, a flan, a, a, a disc, a, a weighed disc of uh, precious metal, and then there was a a, a die, a pattern in reverse on a on a die, and then a um, uh, another one that is struck over the top, and um, so you have a process of the, the minting process is one of striking, and so striking one image or impressing upon uh, one side of the coin an image uh, could be done if the coin itself was because we're talking about silver here was heated up to a certain level uh, that was quite easy to do, and um, it also had the satisfying, I think, for the money uh, effect of physically stamping out Roman Hellenistic influence while impressing upon it um, the, uh, the, 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 uh, yeah, the, the new political um, reigning entity, which was all part of the, uh, this idea of, of the revolt. And not just the first revolt, also in the, in, uh, during Bakokba, the same thing happens. In fact, there's a fascinating coin where you have still preserved or half-preserved underneath the uh, previous image hmm. uh, and then half an image struck over the top and you can actually uh, trace out, uh, hmm. as I take great delight in showing my students, um, you can trace out the uh, both coins on the same coin hmm. uh, because of you still have the under strike uh, visible and it's a great image of the way that these things functioned and worked, especially when it cuts across those political entities as well. Oh, so you're sure that the coin that I found isn't going to be one of those? <laughs> Maybe it was one of these amazing like you, half coins. It's worth know. so oh. much money. I got to call. I'm, I'm going to call shame. them. Up. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see what it looks like. All I saw was this little, you know, it was copper. So it was all uh, patinaed over. I couldn't even horrible. make it out. I just yeah. want to see what it looked mm. like when they cleaned it up. It was tiny. I mean... Is that something that is common or was that just a Byzantine thing, like where the coins were just so small? Uh, well, Roman coins weren't, I mean, R- Roman coins uh, were not tiny in that sense. Some of the Greek coins from uh, the 3rd century and before uh, are really, really small. <laughs> um, there was a couple of coins that I was handling that were only uh, about you know, th- three or four millimeters in diameter, and so you have a handful of these things. They sort of feel, you know, we we're talking about M and M's before with your coin. They feel like very flat, um, you know, M and M minis. They're, they're these tiny little things um, that uh, you know to, to 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 produce something like that. You think of the actual manufacturer itself is just uh, mind boggling, uh, hmm. given what technology was available. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so, some of the Greek coins were quite small. The Romans seemed to be a little bit more practical, although they started off the first uh, coins of uh, of Rome were actually cast bars. Now quite big and and heavy, and mm. so you wouldn't be carrying uh, a dozen of those in your pocket um, because they <laughs> they your pants would fall down. I mean, they're just, they're just you know they're like you know gold bullion type. Um, although not not that heavy or large, uh, but maybe about uh, half a kilogram in weight. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. And, and so the Romans started off doing the opposite, very large, but there are very small ones as well. But in the first century, uh, diameters uh, of the, the, the coins of what we're familiar with, anything from uh, denarius around about 20 millimetres 
uh, right through to a Cistercius, which is double that diameter, quite a large wow. coin. So we've been talking mainly about first century coins, sort of New Testament coins or that sort of era. But are, are there any, I mean, what, what's the oldest coin? Is anything much earlier than that? Mm. Well, there's the uh, the oldest coin in the sense of the first coin that we think was was produced, which uh, Lydian coins are made from Electrum from Asia Minor. But if we focus more specifically on the coinage of uh, what we would consider um, Palestine or that uh, that area, uh, around about um, you know 150 years after the temple is rebuilt, so around the mid fourth century BCE, a mint near or uh, in Jerusalem produced a series of coins which uh, was a, a specific um, a, a specific weight. But what's really interesting is that on this coin. The front of the coin has a, a, a large ear, like a human ear. <laughs> a human uh, and ear. Then, <laughs> but that's right, yeah. And on the reverse, uh, it, you have the uh, a falcon with the wings spread out, uh, uh, accompanying with uh, an inscription. Which um, it, it's in, it's written in Paleo Hebrew letters, um, but it's uh, Yehud, uh, referring to the administrative province. Um, of the Persian Empire in the region of Judea, Yehud, Judea, uh, during that time. A- and then this numismatic representation of the ear can either be understood, um, and uh, you know, people obviously have, have spent a lot of time thinking about this fascinating, well, why on earth is there an ear on this coin? But it, it could either be um, uh, a, a point that Yaakov Meshura makes, uh, is that it's God's ear, and he and um, oh. and he he says that it's um, you know it's a in, in ancient forms of uh, ritual prayers to various deities. Uh, the relationship between Hero human Israel. and God is yeah. Well, yeah, that that that's uh, that's um, that's that's also a part of it. But it's human, also yes, that the deity here hears the voice. Mm, um, mm, so God's mm. most important organ was his ear because he has to hear your prayer. So, you know, numbers and the Psalms and elsewhere, it talks about that. But then, like you say, there's the other side, the human side of it. Uh, is it the is it a person's ear? Uh, another scholar by the name of Gerson calls attention to that when there's there seems to be a disproportionate number of references to ears and hearing in post-exilic writings. Um, and this goes back to precisely that of, of the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, and this is a phrase that, um, or an image that recalls that the people are now hearing and they're back in the, back in the, in the, in the land um, because of that hearing. So maybe to do with uh, you know, an anthropomorphic image of God's ear hearing the prayer or maybe to do with the people's having heard. Uh, but, but either way, it's uh, one of the earliest coins that were, was minted in the land itself, in, in the land of, uh, of, of uh, Jerusalem um, uh, under uh, their, their own authority, uh, albeit uh, an authority that is Persian, uh, because it's uh, it's a uh, Judea is a, a province uh, at this time, and so the thing I think you know for for people who've read the, read the New Testament that are listening, uh, I'm reminded at least of Revelation um, two when it talks about it, whoever has an ear to listen, 
um, mm, mm. and it admonishes people to listen carefully to to, to the oracle that uh, is coming, the, the wisdom, um, uh, and things like that. The coin itself, I mean, in and of itself, I think it's a fascinating little example, but that coin helps concretize and, and, and contextualize uh, the very concept uh, that the authors, the biblical authors, are trying to communicate in this sort of visual word image, but it's tangible. You can see it and, mm. and touch it. Uh, and I think that's really exciting. Yeah, it's fascinating. You made me nervous for a second. You're like, it has the ear on the one side and then on the back. And I didn't know what body part we were going to have on the other side, but it was <laughs> right. just it was just yeah. the ear. Just Striking. the bird. <laughs> um, well, Michael, this is this has been fascinating. Um, I'm going to run out and Google an image of the ear coin because that I got to see what that looks like. Yeah. But um, I'm, I know our listeners have uh, have learned a lot from this. I'm sure very few of them have thought about ancient coins and how much they can tell us. Like you said, they're these primary sources, these mm. contemporary um, artifacts from the ancient world that we can learn a lot from. So uh, thank you for talking to us and thank you to our listeners. Thank you, Helen. And this has been another episode of Biblical Time Machine. We'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Biblical Time Machine, consider supporting us by subscribing to our Time Travelers Club. Find out more in the episode description below.